So this week's guest is Micah Bethay. Based out of Jacksonville, Florida, Micah is a composer, arranger, producer, and band leader in the jazz vein. He received his graduate and undergraduate degrees, both in jazz, from the University of North Florida. In 2012, he received the Undergraduate Arranger Award from Downbeat Magazine and was featured in an article on their November 2017 issue. He's a co-owner of the Q-Note, a billiard room and jazz venue, a board member of the Jacksonville University LBC of Fine Arts Committee, and recently opened NFS Ranch, a 40-acre location for a high-end recording studio and recording label, and recently opened NFS Ranch, a 40-acre location for a high-end recording studio and recording label, NFS Records, and wedding destination venue. Though he writes for many mediums of ensembles, most of his music is set to the big band format and is primarily written for his own amusement. He has released three albums with his own group that show his fervor for the instrumentation. The self-titled Michael Bethay Big Band, Stage and Studio, and Sweet Theory. His big band incorporates some of the highest level of performers in the North Florida region and the occasional special guests. Chris Potter, Renee Marie, Michael Dees, Dennis Marks, Todd Del Judas, Linda Cole, and Charles Turner are just some of the many elite musicians that he has worked with and have played his music. Welcome, Micah. Let's start off with asking, how have you been spending quarantine? I have been a very lazy musician in my writing regards, but I do believe in supercharging as far as writing. So if I continually write, everything has like a, a almost a homogenous effect. But if I stop for a long time and start back up, you will hear a drastic difference, or at least I do. So that's how I excuse being lazy. And, <laughs> <laughs> we've all been dealing with mental health, so I've uh, been appropriately dealing with that in very good ways, mostly Netflix and video games. That's and I've awesome. been focusing on the studio. Oh, yeah. But my personal musical expression, I've just been stepping back on that just because I want to figure out how to express myself better. So mm -hmm. we'll see. Maybe You've a project been... will come up to inspire me. I see you and I raise you one. <laughs> I'll find <laughs> you something. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, in your studio, been doing a lot of live stream concerts. Can you talk about how that kind of came to be? And actually, I, I was getting into watching these videos by that the group Knower that they did with Bob Mincer and the WDR Big Band. And I was really digging these videos and it was just, spliced up big band charts, but they were done really well in their own like crazy style. And I really started focusing on the streaming aspect and video aspect of a career nowadays. Much like a lot of comedians get their start online and like a lot of other professions, like on YouTube, make your own channel and then you get big. And then like, I think Bieber did the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So jazz musicians and classical musicians and musicians who enjoy being snobby about our music, we need to learn how to be modern with our careers. And uh, I just started seeing how they were doing it. And then I knew all the gear we had at the studio. And my engineer, Ryan Leroy, is not just good at mixing and doing audio with a billion hours to just sit there and do it. But he does live audio like no one's business. And I heard him at the La Villa Jazz Festival when I put it on uh, with John Lumpkin in the, well, John Lumpkin put it on, but he had me and Leroy in charge of the sound and Leroy did so amazing. I'm like, I want to do studio with him. And then you were there, Gina, three months mm -hmm. later when we got the gear and the, the ranch. Yeah, so he's good at live sound. So we knew some guys when quarantine happened, I was like, well, there's no more gigs. My venue at the, my pool hall, we, were, we had to stop. 
So our buddy Wes was playing guitar at his house. So we just said, hey, we have plenty of cameras. Let's just get a, a stream switcher so we can connect the camera feeds and do a stream. And so Leroy did all the research for all the technical stuff. He got the right gear. He is amazing. And he got all the gear together and we did the stream and it did so well Then we did Taylor Roberts that weekend. And then we had a group that wanted to come in, Kenny Hamilton on sax with Stefan and Jonah and Stan Piper. Gina knows all these people. Mm -hmm. In the North Florida, everybody has one name and we know everybody by that one name. Yeah. Then we just started having groups happening and we at first we were just letting them get the donations for themselves. And then I realized, well, this it takes Leroy a long time to set up, get the stuff done right and do it. And it was just, we're gonna have to make money. So then we started coming up with a formula for donations and payment because we figured in the long haul, any group that comes in, they're going to get the highest quality audio recording mm -hmm. and 4K video right there at the end. So they at least have a product at the end. So we're trying to get a little bit of money for that and uh, maybe keep the power on and uh, that will enable us to put out the music we want to hear, you know? Yeah. Well, we, we want to hear all of this music, but I mean, our particular vision. What was your inspiration for starting your record label and your recording studio? Let me preface that with a question Gina posted on Facebook the other day. Oh. And it was, uh, what was it? Uh, why do you love music or why do you do why music? Do you, why do you play music? And I posted a video on her thing. And it was a snarky puppy with Layla Hathaway. And she does that crazy split voice thing that I don't understand yet. And that video was what me and Leroy, actually, whenever I first met him, Stan introduced us. And I said, that's what I want a band to do. And when I first started recording the big band, like studio-wise, that was the basis of it. That's what I love about music. And I don't know if you know, but I used to be an actual physical playing musician until I got into an accident when I was 21. And uh, I can't play anymore. I'm technically a quadriplegic. And so I only write. And I, most musicians, if you play with guys all the time, and then you go like all of a sudden for like a year or two, and you don't play with anyone, and you don't feel that connection with music, it's really weird. It's like, uh, it's like living without the internet. You, you feel like you can't connect to people, even though you can connect to people fine. Mm -hmm. So doing the big band is my way of connecting with musicians. The only way I can feel like a musician is if guys are playing my music. And so I started writing and doing the big band. And through the big band, when I did my masters, all of my masters wound up being learning how to record a big band in the studio and out of the studio. And then in doing that, I wound up having small groups just come and record at my house because I realized I would go out to a ton of gigs all around town and there wouldn't be barely anyone there. And I would like record it with my phone sometimes. And then I realized I wanted to record those groups. So I started having small groups come to my house and Leroy would bring his gear and we would record. Leroy's parents are realtors for Watson Realty and they found out about this property. And then he found out about this gear that went up for sale from a school in St. Paul, Minnesota that went under a recording school. And I won, managed to win a whole bunch of the gear for cheap and get the property and uh, you know, providence or fate or whatever it is, the studio became, is now a way for me to connect to music by be creating the scene and by shining a light on all my friends that play. It almost feels like I'm part of the music 
by showing the world the music. I don't know. I guess uh, it would make me the sound system. I mean, I didn't, I didn't write the music. You know, I can't take credit for it, but I can take credit for people being able to hear it. So yeah. I guess there's that. And, you know, uh, it, you got to have a scene. And to have a scene, it's really hard if people don't know about the music there because then you're solely reliant on all the locals. And as a local, it's really hard to support your favorite friends and musicians every gig, you know, time and money. So you really rely on tourism. So I figured I had to find a way to create music tourism and have North Florida known for music and slowly trying to record the groups and really focus on the personalities of the group, the names of the guys, not just the band of the group, not just like ACDC, Aerosmith, but I mean like, you know, like the Beatles, you know, every name of the band, band members, period. I wanted people to know musicians like that again. That's really my focus for the studio and all of that. And Leroy is so good at engineering that it was easy to commit to the project. And you've always, for anybody who's listening, has been very like involved, even in the student body, at, not only at UNF where I went, but at JU as well, with the students, like inviting them into your big band. Even now you have like some, a little bit more young blood. Like I used to be the young blood, but there's even younger blood. <laughs> So can you talk a little bit about why you're so passionate about reaching out to the students in particular, knowing that not all of them are going to stay in North Florida? That goes back to kind of like myself. Like I grew up the quintessential band geek. I, I was, I loved the music. I played it. I was in the room all the time. But what I found was for the most part, outside of the band room, no one else listened to that music. And that was, you know, it was really hard for me. I wanted a community but I didn't feel a music community. And then when I came to UNF, that was the first time I ever had it. When I, I started finding a scene, I realized for me how important it was to have a scene and to connect to guys and to play with people. And also when I came to UNF, you know, Ray Callender, I started hanging out with him. He taught me so much, but just like, like street learning, just hanging out with your buddies, like having a musical culture is the only way I felt I could grow not just reading and memorizing my, you know, types of harmony and all that stuff. And just playing it didn't feel like proper application. I needed a social application for the music, talking about with them, like playing those types of harmony and learning it from that way. And that worked for me. And I wanted to provide that for all the people coming into like school and realize, and I want them to know that there's a possibility, you know, once you get out of college, there is a direction you can go. There's so many directions you can go. I wanted to provide a way for that to happen. And also younger talent is cheaper talent. Can you talk just a little bit about both your compositional process and maybe something that really inspires you compositionally? There's two ways I think compositionally. There's strictly the melody and harmony, right? Just like the lead sheet tune version of the song. And then there's whatever medium you're arranging that tune for, whether it's solo piano all the way up to a Jaco birthday, concert ensemble every <laughs> instrument in the world with that in mind with lead sheet style stuff there's many different ways obviously to write a tune a lot of times i'll i'll have a voicing i like or a chord and i'll hold that i'll spell it out on finale or whatever and hold the sound out and listen to it for a long time until either i hear another chord or i hear a melodic line or something and then once I have that, 
I just listen to that one bit over and over and over again. And then I either hear another chord or I hear one note move somewhere or I just hear something. And the piece kind of just zigzags itself into completion. And that stemmed from a, a thing I did with Dennis Marks, who I, I learned from at UNF. I was taking private lessons with him and he brought in this 70s Wayne albums. Crazy, crazy stuff. And we just listened to it and he's like, all right, come in next week with a standard arranged uh, reharmed like that. Like we didn't discuss how they did it. He's just like, do that. And I was like, okay. I just listened to the recording so much. That's the only way I could think to mimic that sound. In doing so, it kind of felt like a more natural way to write music because I kind of left the formulas and the functionality of anything. And so I could always just jump back to the functionality if I want the harmony to sound uh, relatable in some way because it's very easy to jump out of that. Um, but that's how I do would do melodies and stuff. And then sometimes, you know, you just have a melody and you just write it and it comes to you. And then you have an A section for about five years until you write a bridge. But that's melodies. And as far as arranging now, that's a little different for me. And that can also be hybridized with writing a tune. So if I, writing a tune. So if I have to write an arrangement for a big band and I don't have a tune yet, I could literally write the melody as I'm writing the arrangement. But it's not as magical as like Sammy Nestico or Frank Foster, where they could just write it on paper and, you know, on the train. I am not a great musical uh, ear. And so I do a lot of guess and check on the computer and like try to find what my ear is hearing. The process for writing the chart then is, I guess, even if it has, if it's a arrangement, right? And it already has lyrics, right? People ask, do the lyrics of the song, are the, is that the meaning of the song? Or is the music the meaning of the song? And I would say neither. The meaning of the song is the meaning of the song. And both are trying to express that in their own way. And if you think about it that way, you can then make any set of lyrics in any song kind of timeless. I did it for like say Tenderly, which Gina was featured on. I did that. I took that song and it was about a couple's first kiss. And I just tried to approach that concept of a kiss in my own twisted mind for a first kiss. And then I did the arrangement that way. And though I'm not saying it's twisted in that it's like weird music or like crazy metal, I, I really wrote, write a story about it. So like the length of the song is five minutes. There's two climaxes. There's chords that explain certain feelings. And then those feelings are supposed to happen at certain times in the song. So I really, I acted out a scene and it's playing almost like a soundtrack, I guess you could say. Okay, just before you move on to more of that, can you talk about like those chords in the beginning? Because when we played them um, before the recording session or anytime we played them the first time in that rehearsal, you were like, all right, this chord is this and this is, so we had like an idea of what each, what feeling each chord represented. Yeah, I'll try to be as less, less graphic as possible. Okay, <laughs> I know. I was like, let me. Let <laughs> Let's. I will talk completely in inference, and if you don't get what I'm saying, that's because you're not old enough to understand it yet, or I am too convoluted in my speak. But like a couple's first kiss in the modern era, a first kiss for a person, I don't feel as ma as as magical as a person's first time. First time. So I tried to write the song as a couple's first time. And if it was your first time, I tried to think of the emotions you would go through. And then uh, I forget the words, but there's like uh, surprise, acceptance, and other things. Like the four emotions you go through as it happens. And um, I 
found for the first word, I found a chord that I felt appropriately matched that feeling. And then when I picked the next word in the word salad or whatever, um, the, the word centipede, uh, I chose a chord that related, as that word related to the word before it, the next chord related that same feeling to the chord before it. And so if the second chord was like D major 13 sharp 11, it doesn't always mean that feeling, but in relation to the feeling before it, it did at that moment. And so I did that for each four chords. And uh, I just took like a, a phrase for the melody and the trombones did a thing with it. And then I built up a momentum thing as the couple is ravenously ripping their clothes off. Starts playing the melody, which is, you know, basically when you start boning. That, I, that was the inappropriate, I guess, appropriate storytelling of Tenderly. But as gross as it is, it has nothing to do with the music when someone hears it. But it was all inspiration to create any random number of small ideas that could be either funny or ridiculous. And a person might not even know. Like, say in that song, if I was, it was about the couple making out and I wanted to say, oh, somebody hiccuped and they laughed about it. I could do something musically that represented that, even though people listening might not feel that that happened or they might not laugh. But it would give me an idea for just anything musically. It's surprising how cohesive that can make functional things like theory, harmony, melody, all those things you learn. It's funny how you can utilize those things in the same way that when you think about typing to someone, you can spell the words and you're not thinking about where the letters are on the keyboard and you're not thinking of how to spell the words. Those techniques are there. And if you're just focusing on storytelling, then all the theory stuff comes in the appropriate ways. Can we play the track for totally. the listeners?
that was for anybody listening the first time anybody had given me a solo feature on anything ever really well you needed to start yeah and you're doing great now it was before i knew the range of the bass trombone <laughs> and then Corey came and he shredded everybody afterwards Ugh. well the concert at the jazz fest y'all you really tore those solos up when y'all played it then oh but that was because that was years after so i had a little bit it of was more. six months later no it wasn't november to june or may I don't know. I, th- I, re- I remember it being a long time afterwards. How does sort of applying concrete ideas, like sp- specific chords mean specific things, sort of like, like Richard Strauss's writing. How does that kind of writing help with your compositional process? It helps keep me away from formulas. My biggest problem with my music is that I don't actually play an instrument anymore. And the problem with that is, is like if someone's like, you know, hey, learn Japanese, but don't speak it ever. It would be really hard. And once you start learning things, you might start falling into patterns, which is a very fun thing for jazz musicians. And uh, I didn't want to fall into my patterns. So I always try to find ways to not make things sound gimmicky. Maria Schneider told me once in a lesson, we were, I was working on my Days of Wine and Rose arrangement, and she's heard it. And she asked me certain things and she was like, why did you do this? And I said, because, you know, it needed to have backgrounds. She's like, why did it need to have backgrounds? I'm like, uh, because you put backgrounds in a solo section. She's like, why? And she's like, basically her point was every little thing you do, if you don't have a reason for it, why are you doing it? When I'm writing a song, I, I probably spend more time on it than I should, but I literally every measure, every idea, I start back from the beginning, I click play and I listen to what I have so far. And I listen to everything over and over again for subtle rhetorical things, things you feel, but you don't know. And I'll just go to an area where I feel something. And I'm like, why does that feel weird? And it has nothing to do with music, harmony, wrong notes, good notes. It's just thinking about music as expression as opposed to music as, as knowledge or intellect. That's just how I focus on it without being able to play an instrument. Can you tell us Definitely. specifically what kind of tools those are? like? Oh, um, it's pretty simple. I open up Finale and I manually enter everything, whether it's drum fills, solos, I write out solos, I write comping patterns. All of my arrangements are literally as if I played every instrument, that's what I would have played if I was good at that instrument. You said that you're trying to stay away from patterns. So what are the uh, tools you use to stay away from the pattern? Well, like I said with the other song, that it had lyrics, it already had a meaning. So if you're arranging, the battle's already done for you. You just have to hear that story in a different light. Like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio being uh, Romeo. Like that story was retold. So you just have to think about retelling your music in a way, you know, like, make Autumn Leaves a space opera. I don't know, but you could do that. And now if it's your own tune, um, then it gets even easier because then you don't have to pay homage to the source material. As bad as it sounds, you don't have to respect your own craft in that. You can just experiment, put anything in there, whether it'll sound bad or not. And there's a lot of times I've done something I thought sounded bad, but I didn't pull it out. And later on, I wound up rewriting everything around the bad thing to where it sounded right because for some reason I didn't want to take it away. And I had no logical or musical reason why it just felt right. I guess if art is expression, those are the kind of things you can't ignore. If it's not right, you got to make it sound right, I guess is, is, is one tool. What's, a, what's your favorite arrangement that you've done? Well, arrangement. So of a previously established yeah. tune. Uh, I know what Gina would say. 
she would say my days are wine and roses one, but it was also my first one. But I steal so much from Joe Henderson's record <laughs> arrangement that I, uh, I don't feel like I can take enough credit for loving that arrangement of mine. You know, funny enough, I think it might be, Tenderly is my most storytelling of arrangement of how I did it, but I would say I uh, transcribed this minor blues called Prelude and Blues, and it is the last arrangement I think I have done in big band format. I like that one the most because it was a tune I wrote because I didn't have a blues arrangement in my own library that where I could just have the band just everybody just shred and it could take up the entire concert which it almost has but that's why I put it in there and that one's my favorite for that reason because it showcases the band and when my friends play better it makes me sound like a better writer if half the song is solo section somehow I get credit for that as a writer which is awesome when people listen to the track so that's why you know that's why that one's my favorite you can splice that all that up into a coherent paragraph if you like. <laughs> okay, I have a question for you. I already know the answer to this. Does all your stuff have five trombones, Micah? Um, no. All of my stuff, uh, well, originally had four bones. Days of Wine and Roses had five bones because I was doing my first big band arrangement and I was like, hashtag Kenton before hashtags. So I did five trumpets and five bones. I didn't arrange it like Kitten, but I just thought like a big band should have as many as possible. One, so people could rest their chops if they needed to, which is weird because I don't write in a way that I allow people to rest their chops. And yeah. for that, I have to apologize. <laughs> I was going to say, like, if that was your goal, I don't think it was. That was my original thinking. But I, I do heavily, uh, I love using the entire range of instruments a lot. And even in parts, like I, I remember when I was in middle school and high school and I had to play in groups and I was, you know, primarily tenor saxophone and in and, and concert band one that is like, it shouldn't even be in concert band sometimes because I was so bored playing like whole notes and half notes. And I understand I was part of the music, but I wanted to have fun playing at the same time. Yeah. So when I write, I always try and make there be like a spot on each part where it's like, that's the spot you're looking forward to just playing and you want to make that spot sing. And so writing for five trombones allows me to do that also with voicings because one cool trick Dr. Bill Prince taught me is like, if you don't have enough trombones, bury your tenors inside the voicing and tenors can blend if they need to. And so I was like, ooh. So then you could do different things as far as like doubling certain tenors with certain bones and creating like a, a voicing pattern. Because one, traditionally, you know, if you think about an arrangement, you know, as like musicians in school, you think about, oh, it's going to be played in class and people hearing it. But that's, if you talk to anyone else, no one thinks about music that way. They're going to be like, you would need to think about how it's going to sound on a recording or in a live concert. And then at a live concert, if you've ever been in a big band, which I know you both probably have, it's not always mic'd right. Yeah. And you don't know how you're going to sound. So I have a very specific pattern for writing big band so that no matter what the miking setup, the harmony can be filled out and the melodies will be heard. Five trombones makes that very, very possible with two tenors because you can double things up in crazy ways. And I like that. Can you talk about the process of directing the big band and how that has been for you? Okay, well, that is a very interesting thing. One, if my big band is comprised of mostly people who I consider good friends and also musicians with big egos, there's a lot of them. And I wouldn't say that their egos and that they argue with each other, 
but you know they've got strong emotions in that room there's a lot of uh, i have had many people in that band get in arguments and stuff and it's really really uncomfortable so um the biggest thing i do is one well if when it comes to music for a standpoint i always give people audio all their music and everything as far in advance as i can and i constantly stay up on people trying to see if they're looking into it because when my music now i don't want i'm not going to try and talk i don't want to talk like all into myself but my music is not always easy and so it's not like you know you can just get a reading band to play it although i feel like i should but you know people, musicians are busy and you know you you know you can't your friend has a gig coming up in a couple of weeks you can't just practice that music every night you've got other gigs to practice for and you know i'm, I'm understanding of that but uh I, I try to provide as much opportunity for people to know their music because when one musician feels uncomfortable with the way they play in their band, they get defensive or they feel, they feel, uh, they can feel bad about the way they're playing. They can feel angry or the rest of their, anything else in their life that's bothering them will then come out in their anger for their frustration for that moment. And first and foremost, making sure that everybody personality wise in your band is on the same page. I don't like drama. I think that is probably the most important thing. I mean, if you if you read people talk about Duke's band, the amazing thing was how he dealt with his musicians, you know, whether it was how he kept them there, how he mitigated problems, how he instigated problems, whatever he did, it was how he dealt with them as people. And I think as a band member, that's what you have to focus on first. Otherwise, you're going to get guys who are not going to want to, well, they're going to have another gig. And they're like, hey, it pays five more dollars. So find someone else. And you're like, uh, uh, so... You get more loyalty as a band member and you get more personality in your band when you focus on that. And so I think that that the human component is the most important thing as a band leader because you're conducting humans. I mean, a big band conducting isn't really as important most of the time. So it's it's more uh, of corralling of giant jazz buffalo. Jazz yeah. buffalo. Well, you know, corralling like, you know, like a Western or whatever. In the rehearsal itself now, I guess it depends on what level of musicians you have. If you're working with like high school, middle school level, uh, college level, professional level, I, I try to decide on how picky I want to be with the musicality of it all. Sometimes you're, you know, you want it to be flawless, like in high school and you're like, nope, there's one error there. I need to fix that. Or there's one error. I need to fix that. And I can attest that there's a couple guys in my band, Mike Emmert and Greg Balut and others who will, they will they'll be like, no guys, we need to stop. We need to, we need to rehearse this. We need to rehearse this. We need to make it polished. You know, I guess that's probably my weakness. I just think I, I, I don't have a good, I'm not good at stopping to polish things. I feel like, oh, you messed up, but you know what you made a mistake. You'll fix it next time. And I probably should be better about that. And I would say people should, well, everyone else I've seen actually is really good at that. I'm not. But I would think that would be important. Also, knowing your music backwards and forwards is crazy. And I mean, not just that, but like when you're writing and composing, if you're the, and even if it's an arrangement you purchased, you need to like go through everyone's sheets and like not even just, I, I, I know the layout of everyone's page. So sometimes if someone's like, hey man, where am I? Uh, page two on the bottom. And they're like, oh, okay, or something like, know it well enough in certain ways to where you can have shortcuts in speaking. Communication is the hardest point, especially when you have either chord changes or uh, rehearsal numbers or groove sections, or you're saying like, oh, hey, the thing in two, or the whatever, like, there's so many ways to communicate. I think uh, one of the best things is having the proper terminology, everyone on the same page with it is good. Luckily in my area, all the musicians, half of them, I learned the terminology from them. So 
that makes it easy. Knowing the music in a physical way, as far as being able to communicate, communication and managing people. Can you talk a little bit about Q-Note Billiard Room and how that's, how that's played into your growth as a musician? That really played into it in as much as I am not as experienced gigging per se. I had my accident at 21 and then I, you know, I've done gigs with my big band, but it's not like three or four times a week and you know, all of that. So opening the pool hall and it's a bar and uh, restaurant and music venue. And right now we're doing the expansion for the music venue. We'll have a 20 by 30 foot stage. It'll be amazing, but I'm very excited for that. As soon as we can start playing music out in public. Uh, ooh, you know what? That's the first time I've thought about COVID in about three hours. That's, That's pretty nice good. Thing. That's a nice thing. Anyway. <laughs> You're welcome for bringing it up. <laughs> I learned through that how to deal with customers and patrons and regulars coming to the same venue over and over again, which is a little different than, you know, a band having its followers because what well, the patrons are always telling you, you know, they always have an opinion on the music and they're always wanting to change it and they're always wanting this and they're always wanting new artists and this. And it's learning about, I learned about music from the aspect away from the musician. This is the audience. And that is something I never connected to ever in my life. I have never written a tune and wondered, I wonder what the audience will think, or this needs to be there for them. I, everything is written for me. It's an inside joke. And some of the stuff is obvious jokes or this, and I mean, arts expression. So owning the pool hall helped me to connect in the music industry to the listener in a way I never really had before. I approach things a little bit different now, business-wise with my craft, as far as how I promote it, who I promote it to, whether it's like an advertisement on the flyer or it's a commercial or something. I learned how to deal with those things through the pool hall. Funny enough, you don't get that in school either. <laughs> Actually, that brings up a good question. So in academia, we're taught about music a very specific way, right? In the academic way. Can you talk to us about what you think young musicians need to know that they don't learn in music school? I'll just go with ideas that hit me and I'll do it. One, don't focus on terms, focus on definitions. Something is a perfect fifth, it's a perfect fourth. And like you focus on terms and ideas and things and like, oh, well, uh, there has to be a five one, there has to be this cadence, there's no has to. The word is just a way of describing a concept. That's why we call it music theory. We're trying to figure out how naturals who just, how Bach came up with what he did. I mean, I guess he's like the, the genius of it all, right? He's the OG. Literally, the terms are nice. Like there's a lot of things in music theory, like types of phrases, you know, antecedent, connoissant. And then you're like, well, this phrase is this. Like I forget those terms all the time and that's okay. But you need to learn the concept and its application. Kind of like in math, you need to get to the point where you can do that type of math in a word problem. And then once you can do it in a word problem, you understand it enough that you can use it in practical life. That is what it is. When you learn a concept, you need to only learn it as much as you can use it for application. You don't know, have to know the history of every single little thing. It's just something else to incorporate into your skill set. We're taught this evolution of music through Western civilization, through all the history and all the theory, but we learn music more through the music of our time than we do through the music of our past, I feel, in a lot of ways. And in music education, it's very easy to forget that. You know, uh, you can love a Bach fugue as well as anyone, 
but you will never feel it like people have felt it in that time period. I can love bebop, but I'll never feel it like someone felt it who lived in that time period. And I feel like we need to be able to feel what music of our day is. And I don't mean just the pop music, but the musicians you respect, you need to find, if it's in the classical world, find a classical music, musician you respect and see what they're doing and connect to the music of your day. And that will make it possible to connect to the music of the past better. Mm-hmm. And I never did that for the longest time with, because jazz, I didn't even listen to modern jazz musicians until I got into later college. That is something I've come to realize. When it comes to your career, there is your work ethic, there's money, and there's your goals. And it's like driving. The speedometer is your work ethic, the money is right in front of you, and the goals are in the distance. When you're driving, you're not supposed to look right in front of you. So don't ever look at the money. You need to focus right in front of you on your work ethic and your goals. And whatever your goals are will tell you what your work ethic needs to be. And if you focus on those, then the money will come. I mean, obviously there is a certain amount of luck and a whole bunch of other things in there, but as a personal philosophy, if you focus on it that way, you won't get tripped up because money will trip you up on a career. Also look at how uh, other industries are doing things. By that, I mean, look at a car industry and see how that, and see how you can apply how they're evolving to the music industry. Look how media is evolving, TV, movies and sitcoms switched places in 2002. Why did that industry change? How does that affect the music scene? I learn best through abstract thought. And by that, some people, they will memorize a list of things and they just memorize it and that's that. And I have to connect the dots from random things like, I have to memorize how a scale is made by thinking about the colors of some random frog in the Amazon. And for some reason, that'll make me remember it better. I have, through my own process, been able to connect different things throughout the world, and somehow that teaches me something about music. And really, it's the, the world and life component. I feel like music education, as weird as it sounds, is kind of set devoid of modern life. But of course, I mean, like, I didn't go to Berkeley. I'm sure if you went to Berkeley or other schools like that, I mean, that's way more connected. But when you're in a theory class, you know, you're trying to make that 17th century four-part writing rules. That's like has nothing to do with things today. We can break every one of those rules. It's a little dark, but as a musician, one day you might wake up and never be able to play your instrument ever again in your life. Happened to me. And it is scary. And then at that point when that happens, if that ever happened, what could you do with music? If you were a vocalist and all you learned how to do was find your palate, and somehow you got an accident and stiffed your vocal cords. What do you know about music? What can you do with music other than play your instrument? That's like saying, um, I work on cars, but I'm the best guy with a torque wrench, period. I'm good, I can do that stuff, I got that skill. All right, your instrument is your foothold into the music world, but it is not by any means what should encompass your connection to the music world. Don't stop at your instrument and don't let problems with your instrument stop you from music. I have a question about uh, your suite sweet theory can you first of all tell us where the name came from it's a play on words from my favorite bakery in jacksonville it's a gluten-free vegan bakery oh well mostly gluten-free uh but um eric green who plays saxophone in town and is amazing and has played in my band and at my studio well wait not at the studio yet but he will and he has played at my uh pool hall it's called sweet theory and it's really awesome but it's sweet like sugar not sweet like like music so so that's why I got the name for it. Awesome. And can you talk to us about the, like the inspiration behind the suite? Cause this is the first suite you wrote and it's four movements. Correct. 
Okay, well, uh, I came back for my master's for the second year, and Danny Gottlieb had t had played part of this thing that uh, Pat Metheny had written for a bass guy that had died, and it was like a story of his life, and or it was like a, the guy was playing, and it was written to him. That was really intricate and amazing. And so I had was finished with the first semester, and Dennis is like, well, you're about to finish with your, you know, your master's recital at the beginning of the second semester. So you really have the whole second semester to do something. And he wanted me to write a, at least a 30 minute suite that was like the story of my life that, you know, was just an expression of what I've gone through. So that is how the idea for that started. And then I kind of decided to split it up into four tunes because, um, well, I, f I figured I could do a half hour, I could do about seven and a half minute tunes and it would, it would pan out and they would stretch out however they stretched, but that was just the initial organization. And then I split my life up into four different sections. Uh, the first was my life before the accident. The second was the waking up from the accident and being in, drugged up in the hospital. The third was when I got my life back in order from waking up from that. And then the fourth was uh, my life after the suite, what would come after. It's called Guardian Forever. That's that part and that, okay, well, I guess the first part's called Crystal Clear. It's a swing chart. It's written in Sonata Allegra form, but it's instead of the having a first theme and a second theme, it's two different blueses, sus blueses. And then the transition between the themes is actually a rhythm changes bridge. And then I tried to model a lot of ideas like Sonata Allegra form. So, the second theme or the second blues is in the five key. And when I go to the end of the song though, it, the second theme or the second blues goes to the one, stays in the one and you feel it like that. And there's a lot of other small things. And you know, it's not universally uh, follows Sonata Allegra altogether, but it was my inspiration and a lot of ideas. The second one is kind of open-ended and it's supposed to be about being drugged, waking up and being a whole bunch of drugs from, you know, all the all of that and uh, it's called destiny's boat uh, it's named after uh, a girl i was seeing at the time it was really rough waters there and it features todd del judas and he he tears that up and then the third movement is called uh hold on um <laughs> amba nebica hubba bubble gum meniscus <laughs> how that came to be is that's named after the two friends who i felt helped me out through getting my life back together one, my best friend, Amber, and two, Gina, uh, you know. And Gina was helping me a lot with the big band and stuff. And she was so excited to like play and stuff and that gave me more excitement about music. And I wrote a lot more. And I learned to write for trombones because of Gina. Otherwise y'all would just be playing whole notes of oh, yeah. <laughs> in the span of an octave and a half. So, so nothing's you're shorter. You're welcome. <laughs> your notes have stems, thanks to Gina. So, <laughs> The actual intro has a 12-tone row, and so I came up with, a, I took their names, and that is 12 notes that I assigned to the 12-tone row just for fun, and that's how I got the name. But the melody of the tune was actually one of the first melodies I ever wrote, funny enough, and that's where the meniscus comes from. And then the last tune is the rest of my life, so Guardian of Forever is whoever that guardian is. Probably my mom. <laughs> She's... The Guardian of Forever, probably. Can you talk to us about where we can buy the record? CD Baby, iTunes, Amazon, your local flea market, probably <laughs> not. <laughs> and um, your website, which is? MicaBethay.com. M-I-C-A-B-E-T-H-E-A. 
and you can buy your other records there too because you have stage and studio sweet theory and then the just micah bethay big band which was your first big band self-titled hey yo buy it work get it get it <laughs> do you have any advice for like young composers yeah you don't have to flesh out something completely every small idea just write it down just put it on finale make a save file put it on sibelius just make a save file put it down because when you get a homework assignment to write something you're going to go back through your ideas and you're going to be thankful that you saved them i have a question for you are you available for lessons um yeah i mean if somebody wants lessons I'm, i love talking shop you he can does really I love talking shop and he's a very excellent hang and teacher Sometimes my uh, paragraphs are a little more focused and not as blunderbussy. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like producing for all these musicians? Yeah, it's crazy because like I said, my focus is I want to showcase the musicians. So depending on the project, I give myself different, I guess, priority in decision making. So let's say Todd's album, Todd Del Judas. That's going to be released uh, later this month. Actually, when I get off of this, I have to deal with some logistical things for it to release in time. Then that one, I let him do whatever he wanted. I said, who do you want on there? Tell me. I don't care who. I'm like, just tell me. I want to see all of your ideas. Producing is not being about yourself. Producing is saying, I have a bird's eye scope of everything happening, and I can keep everything in line of the vision but it's not necessarily my vision. And so as far as like albums, right? You know, when you're writing and playing, and if you know, if you find out about Todd, his album, it's a beautiful human element. Oh, it's gonna be amazing. It can get be pretty emotional for a musician going through things and dealing with stuff. So it's the producer's job to make it easy and make sure the project stays in focus or keep the artist in focus. You know, I would say that is it. And then if you're producing your own album, you're making sure your own project is in focus. And um, it's very good to have someone else helping you do that. So you're very pro having a producer for your record. I'm very pro musical community. I don't care about something being solely 100% one person's ideas. If yeah. someone has a better idea than me, you know, overdub it. Go right ahead. It seems like you're, you're quite a big uh, contributor to the Jacksonville, Florida scene. Can you tell us how you think we can all contribute to our own scenes? To contribute to your own scene, you need to assess it. You need to go to as many concerts as you can and see what is out there. You need to see not just what is out there, but the potential that's out there. Because, you know, Michael Jordan sucked in high school and then he became Michael Jordan, you know? And so you can see a musician in town that doesn't sound like anything. And then five years later, they're gonna be pro. So know the area and develop an eye for potential, I guess develop an eye for an obsession. I guess that's the thing. If someone's obsessed about something, they're gonna work on it. Finding the people that are obsessed, the people that are willing to go out of their way to make their passion happen. And that was the first step, finding the people. And then once you do that, once you've found venues, you've found artists, you've found different styles, you know everything your area has to offer. And once you have that, then, you know, I know for me, I started having people ask me, hey, man, I need uh, this kind of a player. Hey, I need this. Hey, I need that. You start being known as an aficionado of the scene. And once that starts happening and people start asking you questions, you can start guiding it. Someone's like, hey, man, I'm thinking about doing a festival. Oh, it better be about jazz. You know, like whatever, you know, it could be about anything. Yeah. But uh, it's just slowly, like a politician, like a, 
like any kind of art form or like comedian, you just kind of have to build your, your reputation and your foothold. And then you start literally guiding your own community. And then once you're to a point, you can guide your community in a way, then, you know, you connect to your musician friends in other areas and you try to bring them to your community because all your local friends are going to be tired of going to your gigs all the time and they can't afford to support it all the time or your local fans. So by bringing in fresh blood, you're going to keep your local people coming out to things. And then on top of that, you've made a connection in another city. You've gotten them a gig. They will get you a gig in that city. So now you're finding a way to connect your scene to another scene, which broadens your audience because their internet allows anyone else to listen to your music outside of your scene. So now you can sell your audio tracks and do your digital distribution and find a way to sell yourself outside of your scene. And that's kind of the methodology I've come up with. You know, you can always feel free to adjust and add more, but that's kind of what I'm doing. What would you say is your favorite project that you've done so far? You mean of my own music or any project period? Any project. Well, I really like the studio. I'm not gonna lie. It's kind of, uh, you know, every musician wants to have that studio. Kind of like every millionaire wants to have a McDonald's in their house or something. I don't know. What? I saw Richie Rich when I was little. It, it was part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I really love Todd's album. The music is amazing. Todd is an amazing player. And uh, I mean, I don't want to get into it right now because it's really emotional, but the, the album has a really deep meaning and it, it was made through a point in Todd's life where I don't think a person could have more emotions. So it is probably one of my favorite projects to work on. That's what it does for me. You know, I don't care how complex the music is at some point, even if it's complex, it needs to have that, that human element, which I guess that being the title of Todd's album is pretty apropos. And then we have one more question for you. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a deep one. How do you stay positive in general and stay motivated and inspired? Well, I can, I can answer this for hours. As I kind of mentioned, I kind of gone through my own kind of life issues. And when I had my accident, I was technically dead. And I, somehow I came back and uh, I count everything I experience as a bonus. So when you approach life that way, you don't feel entitled to anything and you feel eternally grateful at all times, even for the things that frustrate you. Like, you know, if I dropped my hat and I couldn't reach it, I'd still be thankful I had my hat. Just, you know. And now that sounds really simple and really, you know, basic. But if you expand that out into your way of thinking, it does help a lot. And uh, two, I also believe much like technology, your brain's like a computer. You have to let it defrag. If you have it running for too long, um, it'll start glitching. And when it's glitching, we all do the same thing. You turn all the programs off and you restart it. So you have to come up with a way to restart your computer. Uh, for me, I have to escape into another universe, whether it's Star Trek or a video game or a movie. And then once I've done that and I'm totally in that universe and the movie's over, I slowly start turning on each program and each app. Okay, uh, I need to think about food. Okay, I need to think about bills. I need to think about family. I need to think about music. And as you turn them on, those programs won't be glitched and you'll be able to run with a more efficient operating system. Clearing out the cookies. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have any last words for our listeners before we- Any last words? Uh, hooray <laughs> jazz. Hooray oh, jazz. Hooray oh, jazz. I will say this. Jazz is not a style of music. It is an approach to music. I, I do think that is something that does need to be said. All the time, like, that sounds jazzy. I'm like, what does that mean? They're like, da, da, da. I'm like, well, that's swing. That's funk, that's fusion, that's a saxophone. 
but jazz, jazz is an approach to understanding all possibilities and permutations. It's like jazz is Rick from Rick and Morty. He can go into any universe and, and that's what jazz is. It's knowing how to be completely uh, a chameleon or a Renaissance man in music or woman, you know. Mm -hmm. Think of jazz as an approach, not as a style. Dig. Is that your theme? That's your theme? You're saying goodbye? <laughs> it goodbye. seems today. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for giving us your time, Mike. Thank you, really thank you, thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. If I talk all morning long, then when I start talking, my words get more jumbled. It's uh, my thoughts start interconnecting and interconnecting, and there's no organization. Yeah. I'm an undiagnosed something. Maybe I, maybe I'm like that too, and I'm just too busy talking all the time to notice. <laughs> He's a quarter chug, a quarter chihuahua, and half Yorkshire Terrier. Tell him, it's tell, tell Chris his full name. Ori Pepper, Haas and Pfeffer, Cheese Bottom, Bethay. <laughs>